Amen. You may be seated. Well, today is our first day beginning our series in the book of First Peter. We'll be going through this book over the next few months. But before we jump into that, I just want to also say this is our first Sunday as a church without either Pastor Jeff Brewer or Pastor John Trott as one of our pastors. And there's a quote in First Peter 1 that I think is really appropriate for this moment. Uh, Peter quotes Isaiah chapter 40, and he says this, All flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. I want us to begin that series with that at the, at the very forefront of our mind, that the word of the Lord remains forever. Our church and our faith are not built on any of us in this room, but they are built on the enduring word of the Lord and on Christ. And that's not going to change no matter what. And so uh, let's join in prayer, and then we're going to read the first two verses from 1 Peter chapter 1. Father, we thank you that that is true, that your word does not change. And fathers, we look at your word today. We ask that you would help us to do what that old hymn reminds us to do and to turn our eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, as we do that the things of earth would grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and in his grace. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read the first two verses from 1 Peter, and then we'll get started. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is God's word. As I've been preparing for this sermon, there's been this kind of theme that's been coming up in my mind over this past, these past two weeks, and it's, it sounds trite, but it's not. Um, it's this, that life is hard. Life is really hard. I was just reading earlier this week uh, a sports journalist column who I've followed over the past couple years on and off named Jonathan Sharks, who was just diagnosed with terminal cancer. What really got me as I was reading about his preparations for what's his death, he's a Christian, but as I, as I read through what he had to say, what got me was reading about his two-year-old son and wife that he'll be leaving behind. In preparation for this sermon, I was reading the website Open Doors, which chronicles and talks about persecution that our brothers and sisters are experiencing all around the world, different Christian, Christian communities all throughout the world and how they're persecuted. There are Christians <clears throat> right now who are being forcibly placed into psychiatric hospitals in Afghanistan if they are discovered to be Christians. And frankly, that might be one of the better case scenarios for them. There are Christians in Somalia who will be killed by their families this week if they find out that they're believers in Jesus. There are numerous pains and struggles going on around the world and in the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. And 
There were numerous pains and struggles that walked into this room today as well. When we think, begin to think about all the suffering in our world, it can begin to overwhelm us, frankly. And I believe that's part of why Peter wrote the letter of 1 Peter to us. There is so much suffering in our world. And it seems that Peter's readers, as we go through this book, we'll see, were experiencing some pretty significant suffering of their own, specifically because they were believers in Christ. And when we experience suffering, especially when it's prolonged, it can begin to feel kind of like you're adrift out at sea and you don't really have anything to grab onto, like it's never going to end. That's why Peter's writing this letter. He wants to show us what we can grab onto, that we can grab onto Jesus, and to show us how we as Christians can endure faithfully as we suffer. So what I want to do today is take some time. I want to provide a very, a first, a big picture overview of the book of 1 Peter, give you a sense of what to expect as we continue to walk throughout this book. Uh, there's all sorts of themes and riches we're going to see each week that we'll draw out of, out of uh, the different passages that we look at. But there's two in particular that I want to talk about today that I believe stand out as you go through the book of 1 Peter. And it's these. These are the two major themes I want to touch on today. Saints who suffer with hope and the holiness of a chosen people. Saints who suffer with hope and the holiness of a chosen people. And as we go through these, these themes, we'll see how they're throughout the whole book of 1 Peter, they're present, but also how they tie into these first two verses that we're looking at this morning as well. And it's my hope, as we begin today and then continue through this letter over the, past, over the next uh, few months, that we'll be encouraged by our Savior to faithfully endure when we encounter suffering. Now briefly, before we look at those two themes, I do want to talk about the background of this letter. So as you've probably surmised from what I've said and the name of the letter, it was, uh, was Jesus' disciple Peter who wrote this book. Um, whenever I read about Peter, I'm reminded of uh, this guy that I used to know in high school who kind of just ran everywhere. I don't know if you've known someone like this. Um, he would run to classes. He was on the cross-country and track team, of course, and he made the basketball team which was great. I was friends with him, but he was also super annoying to play with because he was no good, but he was always in your face, just always everywhere. I don't know if you've known someone like that, but, but Peter kind of reminds me of this kind of person. Just seems like he's always running, jumping out of boats, um, running to see Jesus, sprinting to the tomb when he finds out that Jesus' body is missing. He's, a, he's the disciple that knew what it was like to tell Jesus, I am never going to let you down. And then hours later to deny him three times. And he was the disciple that knew what it was like to have Jesus publicly forgive him. And to give him the task of helping establish the early Christian church. He knew what it was like to suffer for the sake of Jesus. And he knew what it was like to be embarrassed for following Jesus. And he knew what it was like to receive the grace and forgiveness of Jesus for that embarrassment. So there is no better person to speak of the grace of Jesus and the suffering that comes from following him than the disciple Peter. If you noticed when we read the first two verses in chapter 1, uh, Peter's writing this to a group of people he calls the elect exiles of the dispersion. 
And he lists all these different locations, geographical locations, which most likely kind of followed a trading route so that the letter could make it to all these churches along that route, called the circular letter. And from what we'll see as we continue through this book, it seems as though Peter is writing to Gentiles, non-Jews, who had converted to Christianity. Although there are likely, of course, Jewish Christians in these churches as well. He uses these terms exile and dispersion, which are terms that, which would have brought to mind the past when the Jews were in exile and were spread out away from their homeland. In other words, what he was telling these people who received this letter is you all are like spiritual refugees. You belong to the kingdom of God, and as long as you live in this world, you will be away from your true home with Jesus. I have a friend who was involved with the evacuations out of Afghanistan last year. He was one of the pilots that flew those huge planes that we, many of you likely saw pictures of. And he would describe to me and Megan how striking it was to see how many people had left literally everything that they had, except the clothes that they had with them as they were on the plane. I imagine many of you saw those pictures too and were really struck by it as well. And I, unfortunately, and, and I'm afraid we're also going to see many more pictures of, of these kind of things as we see all of these refugees leave Ukraine. The nature of a refugee that you have to depend on someone else for every single thing that you need. And that's how Peter talks about these Christians he's writing to. Exiles or refugees who are from their home and who spiritually don't have anything of their own and need God to give it to them. On top of that, it seems from Peter's letter that they were suffering, likely in many ways, but especially for the fact that they were followers of Christ. So that's who he's writing this book too, and that is who is writing this book to these Christians. And so I want to talk about this first theme now that we're going to see throughout this book, saints who suffer with hope. It's fairly obvious as you read through the book of 1 Peter, we're going to see that this is the primary context for the letter of 1 Peter. Suffering is everywhere in this book. Peter's clear that he expects that suffering is going to come for those who follow Jesus. And in 1 Peter 4.12, Peter writes this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And notice Peter does not say if trials come. He says when the trials come. Peter knows that his brothers and sisters are suffering and they will continue to suffer. And he wants to encourage them not to lose heart or to fall into sin. David Pallison once said that suffering creates the context for many ways to sin. What he meant by that is when we experience trials or difficulties, the tendency for us is to begin kind of closing in just onto ourselves. We become so focused just on what's going on to us and what our experience of that suffering, that it becomes very difficult to see anything else. And the questions that come up in those moments are why? Why am I going through this? Why me? God, why did you allow this? How much longer? Those questions get very, very loud. And in that kind of experience, that is where we are often tempted to sin 
and begin giving up living in a way that honors our Lord. You know, those responses are very common. I don't deserve this. Why, God? Why are you letting this happen to me? It's kind of the Job response when we encounter suffering. Another response might go more like this. Wow, I must deserve this. There must be something that I've done, or God's punishing me for that sin that I didn't tell anybody about. That's like the Pharisees saying the blind man must have been blind because of some sin of his parents. The problem with these responses is they often remove Jesus completely from the picture. So that's the danger of, the, of suffering creating the context for us to sin. But, Pallison also says, there's another context that's created here as well. And that is that suffering also creates the context for us to greatly magnify Jesus. Some of you might know the name Elizabeth Elliot. She was married to Jim Elliot, who was a missionary to a tribe in Ecuador that had almost no contact with the outside world. Jim was killed when he was trying to meet the tribe to begin the process of bringing them the gospel. When he was martyred, he left Elizabeth and a 10-month-old daughter. And Elizabeth writes very powerfully about this time of her life, how God used it to continue forcing her to trust on the Lord. She'd go on to marry again, and then she would lose her second husband to cancer. She continued to find strength trusting the Lord. I recently listened to Elizabeth's book called Suffering is Never for Nothing. Her faith is incredibly striking because she can honestly say she never lost faith in what God was doing throughout all of these hardships. But what is more striking about this book is after you read her story, you walk away impressed with her faith, but you also walk away amazed that Jesus is strong enough and was sweet enough to this woman that she would be widowed two times in her life and would not end her life bitter, but instead ended her life trusting that the Lord was continuing to work to refine her faith and grow her to be more like Jesus. It brings the question, like, how is that possible? And that is only possible because of the Savior that Peter wants to make sure we know that we meet in this book. So as we go through this letter, we're going to notice over and over again, when Peter talks about the suffering of God's people, he will often immediately then remind them of the suffering that Jesus experienced when he was here on earth. For example, 1 Peter 2, 20-21 says this, For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure... This is a gracious thing in the sight of God, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So that's the motivation Peter wants to give us. One of the motivations he wants to give us is Jesus has gone ahead of us, and he has suffered in the same ways that we have suffered. He has suffered more greatly than we will suffer, and he's done it for our sake. Throughout the past two weeks, I've been amazed, and I'm sure many of you have been as well, as I've heard and watched President Zelensky in Ukraine lead his country through this war with Russia. It's been fascinating to watch as civilians are choosing not to leave, but want to stay to fight. And in fact, we're seeing civilians come back into the country to fight the war as well. And I believe this is in large part because Zelensky himself is staying in the capital and is staying in the middle of the fight himself. 
It is a powerful thing when your leader is willing to go through whatever it is he's asking you to go through as well. That kind of leadership does something to the human heart. It ignites it in a special way. That's the same motivation Peter wants us to see as well. When we experience suffering for the sake of Jesus, the first thing to do is not to assert that we don't deserve this or to try and figure out what we've done wrong in order to deserve the suffering. The first thing we do is remember that Jesus walked this path before us. He agonized for your sake in the Garden of Gethsemane. He allowed soldiers to pound nails through each of his hands and through the bones in his feet. And he accepted the judgment for the sin of all who call him Lord and Savior, even though he had never done anything wrong himself. And he suffered these things for our sake. That is a powerful motivation to suffer well. But that's not the only thing Peter's going to encourage us with as we go through this book about how we suffer faithfully. Suffering, Peter also wants us to know, is never wasted. It is a tool that God uses to help us grow in our faith and help refine our faith. Suffering by nature forces us into stressful situations. And in stressful situations, that's when we find out what in our lives is strong enough or durable enough to survive the heat of that stress. 1 Peter 1.7 says this, We're grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of our, your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What Peter wants us to discover is that the only thing that is strong enough in our lives to survive the heat of suffering is Jesus himself. As we're tested, it causes the other stuff we depend on to melt. And so that all we're left with is Jesus. And that's what makes it possible for Peter to say that faith in Jesus is more precious than gold. Because Jesus will never change. That is the second major motivation Peter gives us to suffer well. And the last one that we'll see as we go throughout this book, or the last major one I want to talk about today, um, is that God uses our suffering. He gives us Jesus as our leader to follow, but he also tells us that we will follow Jesus not just in his suffering. We're going to follow Jesus in his glory as well. So take a look, if you have your Bibles, at 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So Jesus not only has gone before us in our suffering, he's gone before us in the glory he offers to those who are his. I think Peter's very intentional in using this inheritance language after calling them the elect exiles of the dispersion in verse 1. If being a refugee means you have nothing and you are dependent on people to give you everything, then the promise of an inheritance that cannot be taken away is a poignant and particularly powerful promise. A new heavens, God promises us, a new earth, a kingdom, And a king who will never leave, who will never die, who will reign with perfect justice and goodness on a new earth forever. 
And he promises a place, promises us a place in that kingdom for those who know Christ. A very dear friend of mine wrote me a letter this week. And in it, he wrote out the pattern of the Christian life. I found this so helpful. He says, the pattern of the Christian life is to serve and suffer. Serve and suffer. Serve and suffer. Serve and suffer. And then glory. And that is the promise that God has given to us by Jesus being glorified ahead of us. The suffering one day will be over. And we will be glorified along with our Savior. Peter hints at this in 4.13, 1 Peter 4.13, when he's talking about fiery trials, and he says this, Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, so that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So I was thinking this week, as, as I was hearing about these, our brothers and sisters who are spread around the world experiencing very intense persecution, this is a very, very powerful promise for them. If you think about a woman who's been forced into a psychiatric hospital in Afghanistan, she has the promise that her Savior will come and he will glorify her one day. That is a certain, sure promise that Christ holds her and will bring her to glory. And that is a promise that we need when we are suffering in our lives as well. This is the context that suffering creates that allows us to magnify Jesus. Jesus was magnified when Elizabeth Elliot said that she could trust God through all the loss in her life. And Jesus is magnified when you are faced with trials and suffering and you find that Jesus is strong enough and is sweet enough to trust him through those trials. One of the reasons Peter writes this letter is not just so we can endure the trials and suffering, it's so that we can also rejoice in them, as we saw there we read twice because of how greatly that suffering refines our faith and helps us magnify our Lord and Savior Jesus. So brothers and sisters, as we work our way through this letter, I pray that we will be able to say, join Peter in saying that truly we are able to rejoice in our sufferings. I want to move on to our second theme that we're going to see in 1 Peter. This one will be shorter, I promise. And that is the holiness of a chosen people. So let's return to chapter 1 again and take another look with me at how Peter addresses us. You probably noticed, as I mentioned earlier, Peter calls his readers elect exiles, and then he's going to follow that up with three different statements about what that means. The first is that uh, the follower, those who are followers of Jesus, elect exiles, are foreknown by the Father. The second is they are sanctified by the Spirit. The third is that they are chosen to obey and be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. And we're going to briefly look at all three of these and see how they help us see the second theme that Peter is drawing on throughout the rest of this letter. First, we who are elect exiles were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So again, I want us to bring our minds to someone who is suffering very intense persecution, perhaps someone who's just converted in Somalia and knows that if they are discovered that their dad will probably or may kill them. This is what Peter is saying to that believer. God the Father says to you, you are mine. You are mine. I have chosen you, you who bring me nothing, and you need me to give you everything. You 
are mine. Megan and I took a trip to Acadia National Park this past summer. We had a really fun time in that park. At the top of one of the overlooks, I got to the car and realized I didn't have my sunglasses on my head anymore. Um, This particular pair of sunglasses was important to me. About four years earlier, Megan had got me a pair of sunglasses for our anniversary, which I had promptly lost in about a few months, which was actually was fortunate because, as I discovered later, they were designed for a woman. For a woman, so <laughs> who knew? Um, anyway, after I lost them, Megan kindly got me another pair. These are the ones that were no longer on my head, so I was very determined not to lose this pair of sunglasses. So I ran back over to the overlook, started looking along all the paths that I had lost the glasses on or I thought I'd lost them, and I see a a group of people out there, and one of the guys has the exact model and color of my sunglasses. They're not like all that common-looking sunglasses. So I was stuck at that moment between these two options, like the social awkwardness of going up and accusing someone of taking your sunglasses and not wanting to lose these sunglasses again. So I decided to go to the group and ask, sort of, you know, passively, has anybody seen a pair of lost sunglasses? (laughs) Um... None of them fessed up to it. Um, As it turned out, they were in the sunglass compartment in the car, and I had had not actually had them with me the whole time. Um, But it was funny, that moment, you've probably experienced this, when you see someone either taking or has something that you think is yours, (laughs) or that is yours, there's this feeling that you get that Peter wants us to see God has for you. God says that you are his, and he is not going to, to let you go. I cannot imagine a sweeter promise from the God of the universe to someone who is suffering for him. Now the second statement Peter makes about elect exiles is that we are in the sanctification of the Spirit. Now that word sanctification is closely bound up with this idea of holiness. And all throughout Peter, this, uh, the book of First Peter, there's kind of two dual ideas of what holiness means. There's personal holiness and there's communal holiness. And in First Peter 2, we're going to see Peter goes so far as to say that God's people have been made into a holy priesthood. Talking about this idea of communal holiness. That's part of what it means to be holy. We as God's people have been separated out from the world. It doesn't mean we're morally superior at all. But it does mean that we're different. And God has given us the task of being priests to the rest of the world, showing the world what God is like, interceding on behalf of our friends and family and neighbors who don't know Jesus. That is part of what it means to be part of the church, communally holy, set apart from the world. That second aspect of holiness is our personal holiness, which is what most of us likely think of when we hear the word holiness. In 1 Peter 1.16, Peter quotes Leviticus 11, which says, God speaking to Israel, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter reminds his readers that our lives are meant to reflect the holiness of our God. In other words, our lives and the ways that we live them are meant to respond to the fact that God has claimed us. The king has said to you, you are mine. And our response to say with our actions is, we are yours. This leads to that last statement Peter makes about our status as elect exiles. He writes at the end of verse 2 that we are elect exiles for obedience to Jesus 
and for sprinkling with his blood. Which means we've been chosen so that we can obey Jesus and so that we can enjoy his grace and salvation. Now as we're going to see throughout the book of 1 Peter, that obedience plays out in some very challenging and so at sometimes, especially for our culture, very countercultural ways. Now, it's going to be important as we approach those passages to remember that the actions God gives us to pursue holy lives are not arbitrary. God calls us to live in a certain way, partly for the benefit of separating us from the world, but primarily to help us live way, lives, live our lives in the way that God has always intended them to be lived and to make up for what it means to live in a sinful world. Peter also says we've been chosen for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. So he's referring here back to Exodus 24, where the people are literally sprinkled with the blood of the sacrifice after they enter into the covenant. It's kind of a, 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 a very uncomfortable vision for us today, to be sprinkled with the blood of these sacrifices. This new covenant that the Lord has given to us in Christ is that he has brought you to be a part of his new people, but in order to do that, your sin had to be dealt with. And in order to deal with your sin, Jesus himself had to die and to give his blood so that you wouldn't have to die and give your blood for your sin. That's what it means to be part of God's people. He has taken you, he has paid for your sins with the blood of Jesus, And now he holds you in his hand and will never let you go because you are his. And I think what's cool about these first two verses is we see the whole Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all participating in this action of bringing us into salvation, into this new people. Now I want to end this morning by looking at one last important verse from 1 Peter. It's 1 Peter 4, verse 19. Let me read this for us. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So in talking about the context created by suffering, David Pallison says this verse is often very misapplied. But it's a very important verse for us to understand what it means and what's going on in the book of 1 Peter. When we suffer, how is it that we are supposed to entrust our souls to our faithful creator and keep on doing good? This is what Peter does not mean. Peter does not mean that when you experience suffering, the right response is to say, well, I guess this is God's will, so I need to grit through it. That is entrusting your soul to your strength. What Peter means by entrusting ourselves to God our faithful creator, is that we recognize we are entirely dependent on him for everything we've talked about today, all of it. So when we experience suffering, entrusting ourselves to God means telling God, Father, you have promised to hold me, and so you need to show up, and you need to be faithful to your promise, because if you don't, I'm not sure I'm going to make it. That is what it means to entrust our souls to a faithful creator while we are experiencing suffering. And because he is our faithful creator, our father, he looks at us and says, you are mine. So we know he will show up and he will use our sufferings to strengthen our faith and to prepare us for glory. 
This is the message of 1 Peter. You've been chosen. Your Savior has gone before you. He has suffered, so you will suffer. He's been glorified, so you will be glorified too. And as his people, we can obey him and follow him with joy because we know that those things are true. I believe the book of 1 Peter is in the Bible to help us endure sufferings faithfully. When trials come, to help us navigate them so that we won't be destroyed, but that we be able to endure like Jesus endured, and to magnify our Savior as we grow in our dependence on him, as we find in him the strength and the sweetness to endure. Let's pray. Father, it is only through your power and your might that the suffering in our lives can be used for good and for our growth and to prepare us for the coming weight of glory one day. So we ask that you would cause our eyes to look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Draw our eyes to what he was willing to endure for our sake. We ask that you would give us the grace to suffer well in whatever ways you call us to do that. We pray that you would grow our joy and experience of Jesus' sweetness for us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.